All right, Joel chapter 1. So we looked last week about the early and late dates of when Joel could have been written. Uh, the idea that I was arguing for was that it would have been um, written in that time period of the earlier dates before the exile as a warning to the people, sort of this escalation of judgments, insects and famine and all those sorts of things like we see in the time of Ahab to the actual invasion by the Assyrians later on, uh, and that came uh, in the 700s B.C. All right, so we talked about verses 4 through 7 last time, about the locust, whether it was an actual locust army or whether it was symbolic of an army, and uh, I was making the argument that it was actually locust, although similar terms are used to describe foreign armies invading the lands at various points. Uh, we have now verses 8 through 12. Someone read, for those, read those for us, please. Verses 8 through 12, Joel chapter 1. Good luck, Bob. Thank you. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined, the new wine dries up, fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up, and the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. All right, so what's the imagery in verse 8? Braden? Okay. Well, let's start with the picture, too, specifically. What, what sort of image is he appealing to? And that is, yes, what it's getting to, but what sort of image is he appealing to here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's sort of this, uh, this picture where... Um, Either we'd have to look up and see what the uh, what the verse what the word there refers to is it um, in fact I'll see if I can get it to pull up here so the word that is for example in Isaiah seven translated virgin in a lot of contexts simply means young woman so but the point would be even if we're talking like right after they get married her husband suddenly dies right. Um, what, how does that parallel God's judgment on the people here? In what way is it like she's about to get married and the bridegroom suddenly dies. How is that similar to the judgment God's bringing on the people? 
Jonathan? You could make an analogy. The uh, husband is like is the provider and the protector, and God is taking his hand of protection away. And, and locusts are definitely an example of uh, provision being taken away. Okay. What else? Any other thoughts? What sort of, uh, hmm, what's the, the, the tone, the feeling, the, how do people view, in most cases, the, the circumstance of a wedding? Braden? Rejoicing, okay. Joy, rejoicing. And instead, there's all this, what's that? Yeah, this gets, that gets turned around here, okay? Uh, verse 9. Um, think about in the Exodus, when there's the darkness and the, uh, the hail and all that sort of thing. What does God do for his people there? Are they, um, do they experience it the same way as the Egyptians? Are their crops ruined, their animals all killed, their firstborn dead? No. But here, is the worship of God, like what's going on in the temple, affected in verse 9? Yeah, so the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off. And we look at that maybe and we think, why would God interfere with his own worship? Okay, they're not doing the right way anyway. Braden? Yeah, so if they're not really worshiping God, if they're going their own way, um, God doesn't particularly care about their sacrifices anyway. So remind us of any other verses in the Bible. Okay. Jonathan? Yeah. Yeah, so the contrast between Saul and David. Saul, God said, destroy these people. And Saul said, well, but maybe we can taunt their king and maybe we can sacrifice their oxen and all this sort of thing. And um, Samuel appears to him from God and says, I don't want the sacrifices. You should have done what I told you to do. And for the most part, in contrast to that, David obeys later on, and he's not going his own way, doing his own thing. Uh, when the grain offering and the drink offering and all these other offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord, why would the priests and the ministers of the Lord mourn? Yeah. They didn't have fields, so if the fields of the people are affected they're going to starve with them. And potentially there's a, a, a righteous lament that this is falling apart and God is dishonored, but it could be simply, we're starving too, like the rest of you. Um, verse 10 is pretty straightforward. How about verse 11? Why are the farmers and the vine dressers supposed to be ashamed and wail? 
What does a diligent farmer expect? Harvest, right? Um, now, what is the occasion of drying up? What I mean by that is what's causing the drying up? It could be the locusts, right? From verses 4 through 7, or it could be that God's withholding rain. Do we see any examples of that in the Old Testament? God withholding the rain. Yeah. Particularly during the time of Ahab, there's what, three years that it doesn't rain? Whether the reason that there is no crop is because the life has been sucked out of the plants by all the locusts, or whether the reason for the failing of the crop is that God is also sending a drought along with the locusts, this is a, there's this visible picture of God's favor being pulled away from them and this reminder that they need to turn to God in repentance. So, along the lines of repentance, um, let's do 13 through 16. Who can read those for us? 13 to 16. Okay. Jonathan, Jonathan, you're going to do 17 to 20 in a minute? Okay. All right. Thank you. All right, so if there's this call here for them to mourn and lament, well, what's the, what's the significance of the sackcloth? Braden? Okay, that's a good guess, Mary. Okay, yeah, so sackcloth was not... It wasn't fine clothing, right? It wasn't like silk or something like that that would feel good on your skin. This would have been more like wearing a burlap bag kind of thing, right? But they would put that on as a sign, as Mary pointed out, of repentance, of, of, of mourning. Um, we see examples of this uh, like in the book of Jonah, right? Uh, they go so far as to put the sackcloth on all the animals and all the people, which God didn't really require, but... They, I think, were so concerned with God's judgment about to fall on them, they wanted to show God they were serious about the whole thing. What else would they usually have alongside the sackcloth? Ashes. Ashes, okay, yeah. Uh, we see, I think it's in Job, doesn't he say, I repent in dust and ashes? And it's, I think, maybe harder for us to relate to this because... That's not really a cultural, uh, well, for one, as a culture, we tend not to repent at all. But aside from that, if we were, we tend not to express it in this way, so it seems a little bit strange. Why is he calling them to do this action if it said in verse 8 and in verse 9 that the priests are already mourning? Why does he call them to do these actions of external, visible repentance? Robert? 
Okay. Okay. He said if, the, if they're doing it as the leaders of the people, that has an effect on the rest of the people. What else? What? Uh, in verse 14, yes, but he starts with the priest. So just verse 13. My question is, if it already said they're mourning in verse 9, why does he call them to do all these extra things in verse 13? Maybe their hearts are in the right place. Sandra? Sorry. <laughs> okay, so is it possible to be sad because life is hard when you sin, then that's the reason that it's that way. Yes. But there's a difference between that and acknowledging that sin and turning away from it. Um, and it is possible that they were beginning true repentance in verse 9. It's also quite possible that they were starting to get hungry and thirsty and it was bothering them and that's why they're starting to mourn in verse 9. And then the prophet calls them to genuine repentance. Um, think about the Pharisees, some of the religious leaders come down to the Jordan River when John the Baptist is baptizing. What's his response to them? <laughs> he rebukes them strongly for being self-righteous and tells them to go do acts of uh, repentance and righteousness. Right, so we sort of, I think, would have this attitude. If somebody says that they're sorry for their sin, we should just sort of take it at face value. Now, to be fair, John the Baptist is speaking as a prophet. Jesus could see people's hearts. So I think we need to be careful that we automatically know, we need to not assume that we always know people's motives. But if you had someone who is uh, just living a life of wickedness, and then they come and they immediately want to be treated as though they love and follow God, I think there's a reasonable sort of a, are you sure? Are you for real? We see this happen with Saul, right? Later Paul. Um, there's this, I think, reasonable skepticism that this is a, a trick of some kind, right? So there needs to be not just a sort of a, I'm sorry because life is hard because I got in trouble, kind of like, you know, people get pulled over for drunk driving and then they try to get out of it because they know there's going to be bad consequences, right? But if they are actually sorry about it, they stop doing things that are going to lead to that situation. So there was a friend of mine, I saw him post something online. He's either saying it's four or five years since he last drank alcohol. And this was a guy who lost his license a couple of times for DUIs. And um, I remember there was a point at which he told me after the fact, oh yeah, they took my license away three years ago and I've just been driving around until they catch me again. That's not genuine repentance, right? That's just like, I didn't like the consequence, so I'm going to ignore it, right? So there has to be this genuine repentance. Uh, to Jonathan's point about does this go to the people, look at verse 14. Fast, solemn assembly, all the elders, all the inhabitants of the land. What is supposed to happen, not just with the priests, but with the people? 
Okay, Sandra? Right. I think there is a sense at which when it doesn't start with the leadership of a group, it's sometimes harder for it to, to get traction, but it doesn't mean that there, there's obviously still a responsibility for everybody to do that, right? Then we see in verse 15, Alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Uh, the day of the Lord is a huge concept in the Old Testament. Uh, when we see this idea of the day of the Lord, we see it here in Joel, also in verse, um, let's see here, we're going to see it in Joel uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and verse 11, and then again in verse 31. What are some things you can tell me about the day of the Lord before we get to chapter 2? Just what we see here. Jonathan. It's a day that in general is pointing towards God coming back to judge sin and bring about his own righteousness and reestablish himself. Okay. Sandra? I think so. Yeah. They were looking for the Messiah to come. The question, I think, is do they understand that there are two comings, right? I think we see that really clearly because Jesus came, and when he comes, he says, I come not to uh, be served, but to serve. When they try to get him to, to make him king, he disappears from among their midst. So we see this idea of him coming and accepting the kingship is something that does not happen when he comes and dies on the cross. But then we see anticipation of it by the apostles and by Jesus himself that he is going to come back. Uh, there's a couple of explanations of that. One is that had the people of Israel accepted him as their king, it would have all happened at the same time. But the way that it unfolds, doesn't seem to um, doesn't seem to fit that all happening so neatly. Um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there are there are people who will so Jesus says something like the kingdom of God has come near to you, and then they will say, well, if Jesus is saying that, but then the kingdom of God doesn't come. Was that not a genuine offer? Was he deceiving them in some way? Or at the very least, was he offering something that he knew wasn't at all going to happen? And that's a kind of a difficult, in some ways, that's a difficult thing to navigate. In other ways, it's pretty straightforward. He came, they rejected. Uh, sort of this attitude that Paul has the gospel spreads outward to the Gentiles because of the rejection of the Jews. 
But um, we also have to factor in things like God wasn't caught by surprise by that. God anticipated Christ is going to come and then come again. But if, from the perspective of people in the Old Testament, so let's say that Joel is written in the 800s, like we talked about the other day. So uh, David reigns in, what's that? Yeah, B.C., yeah. Let's say that, I'm trying to remember the exact time frame of the reign of David. I want to say it was in the early 900s B.C. So let's say this is, a. Um, when I say early 900s, it gets tricky because maybe if we draw it, that would be easier. All right, so here's a timeline. So rough date that conservative scholars would use would be something around the 1400s is when the exodus happens. Then you've got the time period of the judges. And then I'm trying to remember if David is either, I want to say it's around 1050. David born 1040, becomes king 1010. Okay. So we'll just say around 1000 BC. All right. And then the um, 714, I think, is when Israel gets carried away in a captivity. And then 605, and then there's another wave around 586, is when Judah gets carried away into captivity. All right, so we're talking about, so we're going to put David here. We're going to put Moses here. We're talking about somewhere in this time period, probably somewhere in that time period right here. So what would their concept of the Messiah be at this point in time? Which books of the Old Testament have been written? They have the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They probably have Joshua and Judges, the records of those things. They potentially have some of the records of First and Second Kings, but not all of it. I think people would tend to argue First and Second Chronicles were written on behalf of the exiles to remind them of how God had dealt with them during the reign of the kings, and that would have been something that would have come later. Um, trying to think. I don't think Esther has happened yet. Ezra and Nehemiah haven't happened yet, because that would have been after the exile. So basically, we could say their concept of the Messiah and the resurrection and all of those sorts of things would have been fairly similar to what we see of David expressed in the Psalms. Right. Most of the Psalms, right? So um, what was David's concept of the coming of God and or the afterlife? I say the afterlife because it sort of ties in this idea of the end, the judgment, like all that sort of thing. What was David's concept of those kind of things? What do we see him saying? David was? Uh, what do you base that on? I'm not disagreeing with you. Is there a particular verse you have in mind? or I don't need the reference like... Like a phrase, is there a phrase that's coming to mind? Well, I remember he, 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 he's quoted, I think, by Jesus in saying that uh, uh, my Lord, will, you know, he's got that verse where he's talking about my Lord and the throne and all that. Okay, 
sit here until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That's either Psalm 110 or Psalm 2. I get those mixed up for some reason. So that's quoted in Acts. And I want to say Acts 2. Uh, Acts 2.34. David did not ascend to heaven, but he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Sandra. Uh, when you say refers to the second coming in, in the, what we were just talking about? Yes. Okay. So, that is Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Then he talks about judging among the nations, drinking from the brook by the wayside, and he will lift up his head. So, why would you say that that is the second coming, Sandra? I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just asking why you're saying that. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. Really simple. If we were to put it really simply, and all of what you're saying is true, from our perspective, it looks like it hasn't happened yet, right? So if we put it really simply, here's what appears to have happened, here's what seems not to have happened yet, okay? So the, I'm, this may sound like a rabbit trail, but it's connected with this idea of the day of the Lord. And the problem is the day of the Lord ties into all of these things throughout the history of the world. So it's not just this really quick discussion and move on. So... Other thoughts that we had on this whole subject, what David's perspective was on the coming of the Messiah or people who were maybe peers of David or shortly after. I think this is one of the things we struggle with when we look at the Bible because we are like the Old Testament, right? But the time period that we're talking about, half the Old Testament hasn't been written yet, which is kind of a significant gap in their knowledge, you know? So they don't know, for example, probably that Jesus is going to be born in Bethlehem. Right? Because I don't think Micah has written his yet. Um, they don't know that the Romans are going to be ruling when the Messiah comes. They don't even know who the Romans are. <laughs> right. They don't necessarily, all of them, have this concept that they're not going to really exist as an independent nation either. So take yourself all the way back to their time, knowing what they know, and sometimes I think we're overly hard on them and we say, well, obviously you should have known that the Messiah was coming to suffer because Isaiah 53. If the people who are supposed to teach you the Bible never taught you the Bible, how could you know what the Bible says, right? And whose job was that? And who is being told to repent here? The priest. They're not doing their job. They're not following God. They're not offering right sacrifices, which is going to be a common theme throughout the minor prophets and also the major prophets as well. So we have people who are being told about this thing about the day of the Lord. So if we were to take just the phrase that's right here, the day of the Lord will come as destruction from the Almighty, how would we anticipate they would think of the day of the Lord? 
God's what? God's judgment. There is... I remember having this discussion in seminary because I can't remember what the professor was arguing, but there's basically two ideas, that the day of the Lord is focused on salvation or the day of the Lord is focused on judgment. But the reality is the same event can accomplish both for different groups of people, right? So I think the clearest example of this is, at least in my mind, and it could just be because I like Thessalonians, but... 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul writes the Thessalonians, says, You who are troubled, experiencing persecution, difficulty, feeling overwhelmed, rest with us, rest in this, that there's coming a day when God is going to be revealed, bringing destruction upon his enemies, and in that moment, your faith, uh, persisting in trusting God in the midst of persecution, by those who hate the gospel and oppose God, your through difficulty will be vindicated. People will see that it's true, it's right, that you sort of you were right all along. In this moment, when Jesus is revealed from heaven, it says, with mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on his enemies who don't obey the gospel. So, is the day of the Lord the judgment that comes when the Israelites are carried away in captivity, the judgment that comes when the people of Judah are carried away into captivity, is it the tribulation, is it the battle of um, Armageddon, is it this final uh, judgment where it says God breathes out fire and the armies perish that come up against him right before the end in Revelation 20 or 21? Which one of those is the day of the Lord? Jonathan? In some ways, the way I've understood it, you could encompass it from somewhere, maybe in the middle of tribulation, all the way to the end of the millennial reign. Okay. Which would include all of that. Okay. So, we could theoretically say, if we come here, we're going to do a jagged line, and then we got the tribulation, and then we've got battles, we'll just put various battles, and then we have eternity here. We could theoretically make the argument that the day of the Lord encompasses this, and this, and this, and this, and the locusts. But, um, I think part of our tension is If we make it all of those things, or if we say that it's all of those things, it sort of loses the significance of what's being said here, right? Maybe, like, if the day of the Lord is actually this thing 3,000 years in the future, that feels like a really long time away from what they're seeing right here. How do we explain that? Sandra? Okay. So the day of the Lord could be right now. It's what they're going to. Okay. But how do we interpret that for us today? So 
that we're not going to go through it or something like that? I think so. Jonathan? I'm thinking this is similar to the idea of Antichrist. Okay. Like there are symbolic Antichrists that have Antichrist like effects and you know, behavior, etc. And then there will be the Antichrist at a certain time, you know, when you have the Great Tribulation. And there are like tribulations too, but there's the great tribulation. And then the day of the Lord, there's going to be a specific time period, you know, of the day of the Lord, but there may be days of the Lord, which are similar to that, which Caesar being called out at. Okay. First John 2.18. I was actually thinking that might be a good illustration, so I appreciate that I wasn't the only one that was thinking that. So, yes. Is there the Antichrist in the book of Revelation? Yes. Are there a number of Antichrists throughout the history of the world? Yes. So, I think we should see this concept as being an escalation of God's judgment leading up to this final part right here. Bob? Could it be stated that it's um, times of his direct intervention in, uh, in human history? Uh, I think so. Specifically in judgment. All right, so let's add a few more here. It's really interesting because Peter links the flood with God's judgment and deliverance, both in 1 Peter, which we already looked at, and also in 2 Peter when he's talking about the day of God's judgment when the elements will melt with fervent heat and all that sort of thing. He talks about, he refers back to the flood, right? So, um, there's a sense in which we could connect all of these events I think that we should probably consider this to be, if you will, the official day of the Lord. But, to make the parallel to the Antichrist, there's all of these... You know how there's, uh, like when an earthquake comes? There's all of those initial before it like really like destroys a bunch of Evan? That's all the, that's all. Go ahead. <laughs> I mean I was thinking along the lines of how we are looking for the day of the Lord. Right. Talks about wars and rumors of wars and that's uh-huh. And that's to remind them that there is a coming judgment. 
Right. Yeah. Did Trent, did you have your hand up or someone else? Nope, just Evan. Okay. I'm just seeing random hands. Go ahead. Um, going along with what Evan was saying. Yeah. At that time in the Bible where it says, the Lord says, look up for your redemption stops now. Yes. Is that what that comes in? Or should we be doing that really now? Yeah. So that. So I think you're talking about, I want to say, Matthew 24, and the short answer to that is that it's a much longer discussion that we probably will have to come back to in a, you know, next week or whatever. But uh, think about who he's talking to in Matthew 24. He's talking to the people in Jerusalem. I think that Matthew 24 is something along the lines of your city's about to be wiped, up by, wiped out by the Romans in a few short decades, and that, too, is a, an anticipation of this final judgment and all of that sort of thing. Um, there are people that will say, well, all the stuff of Revelation is just looking back to A.D. 70 when the Romans sacked Jerusalem and all that. But I don't think that... The, here's, here's the bottom line. Joel in chapter 2, which is not entirely fair to you all in this discussion because we haven't gotten there, so I don't know how familiar remembering all the details of it are. Joel chapter 2 describes things that are unlike anything that we've seen in the history of the world up to this point. So here's the tension that I think I have with people who say things like the day of the Lord already happened. It talks about the sky being split in two and, and all of God's people speaking in visions and miracles happening and all those sorts of things. We could say that this is figurative exaggeration for sake of effect, but when we see a phrase like chapter 2, verse 2, there has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations, it seems like for that statement to be true, this has to be something that's extraordinarily unique in its terror or something along those lines. So, um, is this the day of the Lord in the way that Joel talks about it in Joel 2? I think we would, I would lean towards saying no. It's not the day of the Lord, just like all of the false prophets leading up to the Antichrist are not the Antichrist. But here's the really important point that I think sometimes we can miss when we start looking at this kind of a timeline. What was the function of a prophet? What's that? To preach the Word of God. Two functions kind of very closely related. Devin? Yeah. Here's what God already said, go back to it. Here's what God's going to do, go back to Him. Why do we have all this here? So that we would have a relationship with God. In the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a bunch of what we might call date setting. Jesus is coming back in 1894. There was a bunch of interest in prophecy. Let's map all this out on a schematic, on a timeline, on a chart, and then we will understand all of it. The challenge is some of the things that God said I think were intentionally vague because his purpose was not for us to say Jesus is coming back on such and such day at such and such time and so we're just going to go sit there and wait to be picked up like we're at a bus stop. 
The point is not that. The point is not pride. I understand this better than you, so you need to listen to me. The point is humility and repentance saying, if this is coming, what sort of people should we be? Which, interestingly enough, we're not quite there yet, but I was looking ahead to Second Peter. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Which is exactly the message that Joel's preaching to the people. Stop sinning, turn to God, judgment is at hand, the judgment that is greater than what you've seen to this point, but also the judgment that's greater than you can even imagine. So get ready now so that the first judgment doesn't come because what follows after it is even more terrible and terrifying. So, we'll wrap up there. I know we spent a lot of time in that one verse, but I think the day of the Lord is this huge concept in chapter 2, and we'll, uh, we'll pick up there again next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these truths. I pray that it would have a right effect on us, not just so that we can answer Bible trivia or um, get things right on a quiz or just sort of feel satisfied that we sort of see how all the pieces fit together, but Lord, that our hearts would be stirred, that we would reject sin, that we would follow you wholeheartedly and, uh, and learn from those who went before us who refused to repent and the judgments that followed, and the judgment that is to come that we do not have to fear if we are in Christ. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.